Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, last week, um, I had the privilege of running Urbanauts. This is a Sunday school. Um, so the adults in here, and he had a wonderful dedication for August Rose. Uh, it was a beautiful occasion. Um, and it's wonderful to see their folks here too, and seeing August Rose here. It was a wonderful day. I didn't get to see any of that. Um, I was cowering in the back. Um, for, for you don't, who don't know, I am a lawyer by trade. I don't say that to try and brag. I say that because um, some of the slides that will come up, you'll get what I'm trying to drive at. So um, perhaps if we can go on to the first slide. Thank you. So running Sunday school last week was um, a wonderful but fearful experience for me. And it got me thinking about things that are important to me. And as I was thinking about uh, children and the role that they play, it got me thinking about another group, um, widows. Because uh, in my life, um, the two, some of the two most important people in my life are my child and my mother. My child, uh, Leela Grace, and my mother, Atasi, who happens to be a widow. So for the purposes of today, I'm, I'm not going to talk about me. Uh, I'm going to talk about thoughts reflecting on being an urbanauts, thinking about children, childlike faith, and how that's been exhibited in a, a really beautiful part of our society that is widows, with some um, practical suggestions moving forward. Thanks, Rob. Next slide. So, um, <coughs> this is a photo of last week, um, and you see me there with the children all around the table. It may look like I'm confident talking. I'm actually petrified. Um, I've been in some very difficult court cases in my life. I've been in some really um, adversarial situations. But I must say, nothing compares to being there with children because they just keep it so real. They're so honest. If they don't like it, they'll walk away. But praise God, we had a great session. And you can see they're all engaged there. We had some clay. And uh, the, the purpose of the session was talking about um, God molding our hearts. And so I think Clay there asked them to mould some hearts, and some of them did, which was wonderful. Other them used their creative juices and uh, did other things, and that was wonderful too. The main thing is they were engaged. They didn't walk away. They didn't complain and uh, say to their mum and dad, who's this creepy guy who came to run church? But it got me thinking about the fact that children are so beautiful in the way that they instantly are trusting, instantly relying on the person in front of them, the adult who is uh, trying to teach them. Parents, you think about it, you know? You play such a pivotal role, and a young child is totally trusting and dependent on you for everything. And so it got me thinking about our relationship with God and how God seeks for us to be childlike in our faith. This is nothing new for all of you, but I just wish to say to encourage you as a result of what I was thinking about uh, last week. Thanks, Rob. And it got me thinking about the story in Matthew chapter 18 where the disciples had spoken amongst themselves saying, um, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus flipped that on its head and said that you have to become childlike. Verse 3, uh, that's the second point. Truly I say to you, and he emphasized those points that he really wanted to drive home. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. His way of being up is being down. T 
who have a childlike disposition in addition to their faith. And in Matthew, uh, the word, the Greek word for child or children is um, paideon, which denotes young child, can even mean an infant. This level of trust, this childlike faith is such that you are fully dependent on him, that you turn to him like a child turns to their parent or like these wonderful children turned to me to teach them about God last week. And you see, it's the humility that a child shows too in verse 4. For whoever humbles himself like this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so I got some commentary there from, um, from Leon Morris, and I really like it. I'll read it out in full. He says that he believes Jesus seems to be referring to the insignificance and unimportance of children as the ancient world saw them, perhaps also to qualities like trustfulness and dependence. Adults like to assert themselves and to rely on their own strength and wisdom. Thanks. And then that got me thinking about the other end of the spectrum, you know, a widow like my mother, someone who has lost their life partner. That person in society. And this wonderful woman here, this is um, an excerpt from a cartoon that Leela Grace watches, Superbook. And I watched her watching it. I could see the pity drop for her in terms of the faith that this woman showed. She had nothing. She was in poverty, but she gave everything. Jesus juxtaposes her with the wealthy men who gave a lot, but did not give sincerely in terms of the Spirit leading them. I love what it says here. Mark 12, verse 44. For they gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. Put in what she had to live on. Everything she had. Childlike faith. Maturation in her faith lost her husband, and yet her devotion to God is clear, unshakable, childlike. Hallelujah. Now, a practical example is Ruth, a practical and providential example. For those of you who don't know the story, I'll give a praise of it. Ruth is a Moabite. She marries an Israelite. He dies as well as her sister-in-law's husband and her mother-in-law. She is a widow. Her name is Naomi. Instead of leaving like her sister-in-law Orpah does, she chooses to stay with Naomi to enter into a foreign land that she is not accustomed to. And if you know the story well, you'll know that she approaches Boaz, who is the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, and that in itself is a massive exercise of faith. At the end of the story, we find out that in terms of the genealogy, she is the great-grandmother of King David himself. Beautiful stuff, right? There is no mention of God in this book. It is God working through people's decisions, people's faithfulness, childlike faith. Thank you. I love this loyalty, this agape that Ruth proclaims to Naomi. 
And I'll read it for you. And if I start crying, I apologize. <laughs> Naomi is telling her to leave. You go. Ruth says to her, no. Stop urging me to abandon you. For wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. She goes to the uppermost extent. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not keep my promise. Only death will be able to separate me from you. Now, Part of this is a beautiful um, set of scriptures that's read in weddings. I went to a wedding a couple of months ago for um, a dear friend of mine. He's a Jewish man marrying a Catholic woman. So in the Catholic Basilica, they read the scripture and I was like, nice, it's very good. But they didn't, end, they didn't read the last three verses because that strikes the heart of the type of loyalty that God is looking for us to show each other, to show the impoverished of the city to show the people who are in need. And they may be difficult for you to hear and to grasp, but I mean it sincerely with love, that this is the type of childlike faith that we are needing. You see, the child goes with the parent wherever they go. They follow them, trusting them. They could walk off a cliff, the child will follow them. I've seen some wonderful children here at this church follow their parent step by step right after them. This is the type of trust that I believe that God is wanting us to show. It is a challenge, but we have the Holy Spirit to lead us. Hallelujah. Very good. Next one. So this is a screenshot from uh, the Bible Project. They do pricey videos covering the whole of the books in the Bible in a animation style and this is the end of the animation on Ruth I really recommend it I love Ruth so much it is my favorite book in the Bible no real mention of God just people making agape faithful decisions trusting that God is working next one Rob thank you several months ago Lloyd had given a wonderful preaching that was very convicting for me. And he used a slide. He used a slide where you can see on the black, on the far left, this is the present evil age. This is the age that we are living in, the world and all of its influences. And then you see written um, vertically, kingdom, Holy Spirit activity, and the arrows pushing towards that. That is us as a church. Johnny spoke beautifully last week. My mother told me afterwards, I didn't get to see it, but my mother told me afterwards, he brought a beautiful talking about community. My mother is ruthless. If she doesn't like it, she will say it. <laughs> but praise God, what that young man said last week, reverberated with her, she passed it on to me, and I feel convicted by it too. Community. And pushing against the evil. Trusting that the Holy Spirit is working through all of us, whether it be the child or the widow. Isn't it fascinating how God often chooses the weakest in society? David himself, the youngest, not the strongest. Samuel thinks it's going to be the oldest. It's not. What does Samuel say? 
Oh, sorry, what does the verse say? For God looks not at the outside, but the heart. This is where we are at as a church. My encouragement is that with that childlike faith and with the Holy Spirit, we advance onto this present evil age, bringing in his kingdom. Thank you. N.T. Wright. Anyone here familiar with him? One of my favorite scholars, favorite, favorite scholars, a beautiful man, Anglican bishop. Is that right, Lloyd? He just has such a beautiful way of explaining things. This is him talking about the Lord's Prayer, but specifically about thy kingdom come. Remember the slide before, talked about the advancing kingdom of God. This is what N.T. Wright has to say about it, and I'll read it because it's beautiful. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying as Jesus was praying acting for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, and for heaven and earth to be married at last, for God to be all in all. And if we pray this way, we must, of course, be prepared to live this way. So, as we pray for this world, we also pray it, of course, for the church. But this cannot simply mean that we want God to sort out our messes and our muddles so that the church can be a cozy place without problems or pain. We can only pray this prayer for the church if we are prepared to mean make us kingdom bearers, make us a community of healed healers, make us a returned orchestra to play the kingdom music until the world takes up the song. Make us, in turn, servants of the Lord, the few with the message for the many. I'll end on a nice note, because it's convicting stuff, it's confronting stuff. So um, no prizes for guessing who these two women are. I had a plethora of photos to choose from. This was the most uh, PC one for church. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. I've got the NET version here, and I'll read it, but the ESV one is a bit more masculine for me, and I'll read that soon, but you can see it here. A friend loves at all times, and a relative is born to help in adversity. For me, the ESV version says, a friend loves always, and a brother is born for adversity. Thank you very much for hearing me out. Praise be to God. Thanks, Paul. That was awesome. See whether this works. It would be nice if I can use this rather than having to ask Rob to push through them all. does work. Excellent. So my name is Anne. Um, I work at a university, so I speak often, but I just realized I usually have my PowerPoint in front of me, so we'll see how this goes having to turn around. Um, so we're talking about 
discipleship is what the prompt was. And so I was thinking about what in my life has been formative decisions. And the, the one that came to mind as kind of driving so many things over so many years is um, when I first chose a church uh, after I'd gotten out of high school, so the first time I was making that decision for myself, um, I chose, uh, instead of going to um, like a university level kind of church group type of thing, something like Navigators, I decided that I wanted to do um, a church, particularly because it had this multi-generational aspect. And I, I felt that that idea of, of knowing and being known in that context was really, really important for growth. And so that decision um, is something that I've kind of walked out and it's become deeper and more meaningful over the years. Um, and I, I realize it's something like this idea. So this is a book by Eugene Peterson. The title is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And you can't really see it there, but it says discipleship in an instant society. And um, he, he takes this quote from Nietzsche, of all people. Um, but he says that, uh, Nietzsche says, long obedience in the same direction. Um, it is something that uh, has made life worth living, which is, uh, I find to be true. Um, I was initially going to talk about how this particular decision has grown and changed and what it, what, is a what it has meant in my life. Um, but then I decided I actually just wanted to talk about where I currently am with it and not go through that history. Um, I asked Lloyd about it. Uh, I told him it might get a bit dense, and he was like, go big or go home. So here we go. <laughs> uh, yep, might be a bit dense. Just welcome to my brain. Um, so the idea that I want to talk about is this one of knowing and being known. And for a long time, I was thinking that, um, you know, this is a really important part of life and relationships and how God, uh, you know, does things through us in community. But I've recently been starting to think of it as being much more central to the gospel story and even to the definition of abundant life. And so I want to start with two stories, two personal stories um, about how fear of being known and not leaning into being known was disruptive to relationship. So one of them is from when I was 22. I moved to Germany um, to work at a Christian boarding school. And a friend there, um, we got really close really quickly. We were certain that this was a friendship that uh, God was gifting us. And he was already doing things in our life. And we were certain that he was going to continue doing them for the rest of our life. Unfortunately, Satan seems to have thought the same. So he was at it to disrupt that relationship. Um, and he did so by playing our sins and our immaturity against each other. And so it ended up dying a slow and painful death uh, over a year and a half. Um, but I want to talk about one of my sides of that, one of the pieces that I brought to that. Um, it's that I had such insecurity that I wasn't able to kind of show up in that relationship myself. Um, I would try to take in what was going on, process it in myself, and then you know, project that processed version back. And that's what I was going to enter into that relationship with. Um, I remember one day she told me, she, she got quite mad at me for not getting mad at her for the hurtful things she was saying to me. <laughs> so um, looking back on it now, I realize, oh, that's exactly what was going on. I wasn't able to enter into that relationship in a full, true way, and it really hindered and, and harmed that relationship. It wasn't the only reason that relationship went away, but it definitely was a contributing factor. 
So a decade later, I was in a relationship with a guy, and we agreed that that was kind of how we wanted to function, this level of honesty and vulnerability. And there's two reasons for that. One is that um, that kind of leaning in and, and um, vulnerability actually deepens the attraction, so that seems like a good thing. Um, but the other thing is that uh, you know, we were trying to make a decision for the future where we were headed, and for that, we both needed to know where we were at. That was pretty important. And so for me, um, there was a moment when I, uh, this little thing about him um, started to bug me, of course. I, um, that just settled in there and started to um, bother me more and more, and I was feeling myself pulling away from him. And so I ended up talking to him about it. Um, which was rather scary, but it was um, the, the way that he, he met that ended up being a really, really good thing. It, it kind of settled some of the stuff in me, the fact that I could say that and be met well. Um, and, and so it, uh, it, it didn't change that thing. It didn't take away that little item, but it took away its power to disrupt this relationship for me. And um, instead of kind of making lessening the attraction it actually increased it. Um, but that was really hard to do. <laughs> um, I did that after, you know, this 10 years of this idea, this long obedience in the same direction of heading towards this kind of honesty and vulnerability. And still, it took a tearful conversation with a counselor before I could tell the guy about it. Unfortunately, he didn't have that same kind of history. And so he was not able to do the same. So unbeknownst to me, uh, the relationship was eroding from the inside, and uh, one day it was done, and I asked him, you know, what was going on for him and what happened, and all he could tell me was that God was leading us apart. So a month later, I asked him um, for another conversation to get some closure, and that's when he was finally able to tell me, with the help of a mediator, that um, he had lost the attraction and didn't know why. I have a theory. <laughs> um, so that's my experience with this idea of knowing and being known and why personally it has become such a big deal to me. But I think it's also, as I said, part of the story of the gospel. And so I'm going to go back to Genesis 2 um, to think about how this might play into there. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways that we could read this story. Um, in our small group, we're looking at N.T. Wright, and he's talking about um, you know, four different ways of viewing the atonement, and no one of them is correct, but they complement each other by having these different lenses. So as I talk about this, this is just a different lens. It's not overriding anything else you've heard. It's not complete. Um, this is just one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of this story. So in Genesis 2, uh, God is creating man and woman, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him, make a helper fit for him. And the last verse of this, first, of this second chapter of Genesis is, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So obviously there's a physical component to that nakedness, but I want to think about it more in terms of that uh, not covering oneself, being willing to be known and leaning into that. So in the third chapter, um, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So God had said that the day that they eat of that, they would surely die. They haven't died. <laughs> so what is it that he's referring to? Well, I think Jesus speaks to this later in John um, when he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's knowing God that is eternal life, and that's the thing that they had lost in that moment. And I want to talk about what it means that they lost that. So go back. Um, so the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God when he comes down to talk to them and walk with them. And when he's asked why, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So he's no longer seeing God for who he is. God is coming down to say, come walk with me. And he's like, oh, no, no, um, actually, no. I, I'm, he's now thinking about himself. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. So um, it seems like something has shifted in terms of how he's thinking about God, and, but in, had been thinking about God, and now he's thinking about himself. So let's go back and see what it was that shifted in their, their minds. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. So Eve has this moment where she's thinking, oh, that's an interesting tree. I would actually really like that for various reasons. And she has an option where she could go to God and she could talk to him about it. I don't mean talk to him and say, oh, hey, God, did you really say that we can't touch the tree Oh, you didn't say don't touch it, just don't eat it. Okay, good, I got it. Like, it's, it's not that she needed a, a reminder of exactly what the words were. She needed something else. What she needed to do was say, hey, God, there's something going on here. I feel like I'm missing out on this tree. And even worse, I feel like you're the one withholding it from me. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't think I'm supposed to think that, but I can't shake it. And that scares me. And if she'd done that, so if she had let herself be known in that way, if she'd leaned in in that way, then God could have showed up and met her and be known by her. And she could have entered further into this eternal life, which is knowing God. It's not what she did. Instead, instead, the clicker didn't work. Instead, she felt this dissonance with God she indulged that dissonance and leaned away from God, and she agreed with and acted on this misrepresentation of God 
by willfully choosing to not know God. And in essence, she gave herself over to death by abdicating eternal life, which is knowing God. And so what happens is when God comes down, the man and his wife hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. And they say, I'm afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So it's not that in that moment they could have suddenly flipped back and realized, oh, hang on, I remember now who God actually is. Let me go and approach him. They had already lost that. And the reason is because they, they had already made this willful misrepresentation of, that, of God, and they can't fix that in and of themselves. Only God is going to be able to restore that eternal life of knowing him. And so what does he do? He leans toward us. He takes on flesh and becomes God with us so that we can know him again, so that he can correct this misrepresentation that we have taken on of him. So in Colossians it says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Hebrews it says, God has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God has sent his son because we needed that in order to get this, this reset. Of course, we also needed the death of Jesus. That's the aspect that I don't know how that all fits in here. That's the atonement thing. We can ask N.T. right about that part. Um, but he sent his son so that he could be known because he was the image of himself. And because of that, we now have eternal life that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So I had a whole bunch of other verses that I would have liked to have shared on this. Um, I love this topic, so there's a bunch of verses on this topic. I'm pretty sure I'm over my time. So I'm just going to pray. Um, and at the end of that prayer, Lloyd, if I could hand over to you. So God, thank you for the way that you have made knowing and being known so central to our life and the definition of um, abundant life, um, eternal life. Thank you for the way in which, um, you know, as we share and are known by each other, as we're willing to be known, um, that actually brings uh, further knowing of who you are. You know, as I shared my story of um, with my friend so long ago um, that I wasn't able to lean in, um, that story doesn't stop there. Because you are so intimately involved with me and, and um, committed to bringing good, um, that story ends up becoming a small, an important, but a very small step in this long road of obedience um, in which you are the one who is, is drawing me. Um, and so me telling this story about myself becomes um, knowing you um, because we get to hear how you responded. And in the case of Eve, it's the same. We hear this story of, of what she's done, but because you're so intimately involved in it, um, we can't help but see who you are and find out that you are a God who leans toward us, who offers yourself uh, to be known. And so I pray that we would be able to recognize that invitation to know you for what it is, for the eternal life that it is. In your name, amen. <laughs>